Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You're tuned in to an all-new edition of Talk of Champions. I'm Ben Garrett, Brian Scott, Rippy, Stephen Godfrey coming up in this edition of Talk of Champions. Before we get started, let me tell you about Brennan Chapman of Homer Skelton Ford and Olive Branch, a proud sponsor of Talk of Champions. Talk of Champions is brought to you in part by Brennan Chapman of Homer Skelton Ford and Olive Branch. That's right, Brennan. He spent eight years on the football staff at Ole Miss as a recruiting analyst, as he detailed brilliantly in a recent interview on this podcast. But he's out now. He's out of the game, having joined the family business, where his goal is to be with you through every step of the car buying experience, from purchasing to financing to servicing, all the way to the purchase of the next vehicle and the one after that. When you arrive on the lot at Homer Skelton Ford and the Branch, you'll quickly realize that this is a family business, which I can personally vouch for because I recently went through this process with Brennan. And I can safely say, if you're in his area, there's no one better to contact to help you find that car you've been searching for through someone you can trust. So reach out to him today at BrennanChapman.com. That's B-R-E-N-N-O-N Chapman.com. Whether it's shopping new or used, Brennan can help you out. That's Brennan Chapman of Homer Skelton Ford in Olive Branch. You're listening to Talk of Champions, an Ole Miss Spirit podcast with Ben Garrett. It's up, it's up, it's up, it's up, it's up. Talk of Champions. I'm Ben Garrett at Spirit. Ben on Twitter. He's Brian Scott Rippy at BS Rippy. We both write for the Ole Miss Spirit, OMSpirit.com, and affiliate of 247 Sports. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, review Talk of Champions on iTunes, and when you do, leave a five star review. I don't care what you say, as long as it's five stars. Today's guest on Talk of Champions is Stephen Godfrey, coming to you on the Modern Women phone line, national college football reporter for SB Nation, good friend of the program. But first, Rippy, what's up, man? How you doing? Good, good. Uh, just watch the schedule, Elise. You know, I get why they do it. I, I get the whole, like, I mean, it's genius for them from a business standpoint, but the 30 minutes watching that was just kind of like, all right, come on, man. We got to record. But we're recording this in real time, right? Like, pretty much. I mean, by the time we recorded this, just released. Like, first reaction. I don't have one because I purposefully didn't watch it. <laughs> so that I could learn in real time what the schedule was. I refused to watch it, so I'm learning in real time too. So let's go through the schedule. Give it to me. Sure. So week one, as you as they learned first, Florida at Ole Miss. Uh, week two, Ole Miss at Kentucky. Week three, Alabama at Ole Miss. Week four, Ole Miss at Arkansas. Week five, Auburn at Ole Miss, and I'll stop right here because this is kind of the midpoint in the schedule. I will say this. My initial reaction to this schedule was if Ole Miss doesn't take care of business for sure at Arkansas, 0-5 with the trip to Vandy is certainly in play, is it not? 100%, yeah. I was thinking as you were because rattling that off. I think be Stoops, one of the best teams at Kentucky. Like You don't necessarily think Ole Miss at Kentucky week two, that type of a game. I think that's every bit as tough as playing Florida at home. Probably not quite, but close. Kentucky's a really good team. And going to Kentucky and assuming a win would be stupid. So, yeah, you could very well start 0-2. You come home and host Alabama. You're losing to Alabama. Agreed. Yeah, you're losing to Alabama. That's 0-3. So you got to go win at Arkansas. You have to. Yeah, because you get Auburn the next week at home, and then it's Ole Miss. I mean, I don't necessarily think this will be the case. If we get this far, I feel like we have to precursor that with everything. But I do. like I if they. There's a very realistic chance they're going to – Ole Miss at Vandy, 0-5 with a bye week the next week, and that's uh, tough. So uh, I believe I believe this to be a front-loaded schedule for Ole Miss. We'll go after that, obviously. Bye week, week six. Uh, South Carolina at Ole Miss, week seven. Ole Miss at Texas A&M, week eight. Mississippi State and Ole Miss in the Egg Bowl Thanksgiving week, though it is not the last game of the season and presumably not on Thanksgiving. Actually, I know it's not on Thanksgiving, November 28th. And then Ole Miss closing the season at LSU in Baton Rouge. Anything stand out there? Yeah. 
not ending the season with the Egg Bowl. Yeah, why do you think that is? I just, I mean, do you leave it on Thanksgiving and leave the whole tradition and all that? Do you think they cared about that at all? Why? You think if they were going to do something novelty-wise with the Ole Miss LSU game, you would have done the Halloween thing because that makes a lot of you know people uh, from the 60s, 70s nostalgic. Um, but uh, do you see a reason behind this? Why? Not really. Maybe it's just logistics, and that's how the schedule fell. But I'm all for completely and utterly diffusing this rivalry to a place that is just another game because I think it's gotten to the point where it's untenable and the bad faith actors from one side specifically, they, they need to chill. So I'm all for diffusing this rivalry however you can. I don't understand starting with Florida. That's a long trip. And that's why LSU, Alabama, Mississippi State, I heard those three. But, again, going back to it, finishing the year with LSU, if you do get that far, and I'm not convinced they're going to get that far, but if they do get that far and finishing the year with LSU, it's perfect because then you can finally treat this rivalry for what it is, and that's absolutely absurd, and not everything falls on that one game. Agreed uh, on, on a lot of fronts there. Uh, number one, I think – okay, I'll make the counter argument. I'll push back there. Does it diffuse it at all? Because it's still the whole Thanksgiving week, and this game for 10, 15 years until the last couple of years was played Thanksgiving week on a Saturday. And so I just wonder – this may be dumb, but I'm just thinking out loud. Is it possible it could have just been more diffused if it's just the first week in December as opposed to Thanksgiving week, even though it's the penultimate game instead of the final one? Just keeping it on the Thanksgiving tradition seems like – like almost it would have done more to diffuse it, even though it's the last game of the season in this weird year, but having it in But the twenty eighth is Saturday. Yeah, true. But it's still Thanksgiving week. I mean, like I guess I guess you have seen the rivalry go to just a particularly nasty height because the peak of the NCA investigation did coincide with this moving to Thanksgiving night on twenty seventeen. But I just think there's something like if they wanted to diffuse it, they could have stuck it a little later or sooner. Just the whole Thanksgiving week gives off a weird vibe if the your goal was to diffuse it. But uh, be that as it may, yeah. so we had both kind of heard the same thing, I think, in terms of they're going to try to limit travel early in the season. And that just turned out to not be the case at all, right? I mean, yeah. Ole Miss wasn't the only schedule. I was looking up a couple of the others in week one and week two. Nothing, no such thing as short road trips. I mean, Ole Miss is play, playing hosting Florida and then going up to Lexington the next week. So they just they didn't abide by that at all. I'm surprised by that. I thought that was pretty common sense, but what do I know? I don't know what's going through the minds of people that make these decisions and schedule these games, but with Mississippi State being on that Saturday, it does diffuse it because it's not the only game in town. You're not watching on Thanksgiving night the one game in college football, and considering that there'll be so many other SEC games to claim primetime slots and assuming that Ole Miss and Mississippi State aren't particularly good, you could see Ole Miss and Mississippi State play in the morning, for Christ's sake. You don't know. You don't know where they're going to play, and I think that's why it makes it kind of perfect. And then you turn around, you got to prepare for LSU. So it's treated then like just another game. Because every single year, when it closes out the year, all throughout the week, the buildup of it's all come down, it's all coming down to this. It was always coming down to this. This is, means everything. This is the egg ball, the egg ball, the egg ball. Well, now it's just another week because you turn around and after Saturday, you got to get right back into game week mode and start preparing again. So it falls in between two games. It's perfect. I think it's perfect. So I thought that they should have played to start the year just because logistically and with all the travel restrictions, it would have made more sense. But like I said, what do I know? I don't understand it. But when you look at that schedule, as you were rattling it off, at Kentucky is your chance for your first win because I don't think you're beating Florida at home. Your chance for your second win is Arkansas and then South Carolina. I think there are no obvious 100% going to win that game games on that schedule. I mean, you're looking at presumably Arkansas and Vanderbilt. As I wrote on Sunday for the Spirit, I've ranked the five most likeliest wins on Ole Miss's schedule, and the first three seemed obvious, Arkansas and uh, Vanderbilt, but both of those games are on the road. And then I believe I put... Mississippi State fourth I actually don't even remember what I wrote from a day ago but it's interesting both of those games being on the road but yeah I mean no I put South Carolina third and then State fourth and I think I just picked Auburn for the sake of the, the exercise but yeah I mean there's not any I mean you knew this was going to be the case when you went to the SEC only schedule but 
you better take care of business against Arkansas and Vanderbilt because this could get kind of out of hand real quick if 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 you don't. Particularly, I mean, front loaded schedule is tough because Florida and then this version of Kentucky followed by Alabama. That's a tough three week stretch coming out of the gates. That uh, that did them no favors. And there's not really that much of a break. You kind of get a break where you get Vanderbilt by week, then South Carolina, but then you turn around and go to A&M and then the Egg Bowl and then you end the year at LSU. It just doesn't feel like Ole Miss hit a soft spot in their schedule where I saw Vanderbilt had a stretch of weeks where they kind of had like, I think it may have been like State, Missouri, Ole Miss, and someone else. Point being, it just, it doesn't seem like there's much of a break in this schedule at all for Ole Miss. No, but that's kind of what you expected. I think when you're predicting this schedule, even if they had been playing their regular schedule, not this 10-game All-SEC schedule, in that scenario, you still have PTSD from what you've seen from Ole Miss under Matt Luke, how bad the defense was and what the offense was, gimmicky as it was. We don't really know what this team's going to be. And I think what adds to the intrigue and when trying to predict this team is what Lane Kiffin is going to offer offensively. You can watch as much FAU tape as you want to, it doesn't matter because the personnel is different. And he's always adapted his offense to his personnel. Who wins at the quarterback battle? Is it Matt Corral? Is it John Rice Plumley? They had even splits of reps on Monday, according to Lane Kiffin. What does that look like defensively under DJ Durkin? Does the scheme help to, I guess, mask and cover up what's going to be a lack of a pass rush? Does Sam Williams show back up at any point? All these things kind of play into it. But what really is driving... I think the uncertainty and the hesitation when picking games for Ole Miss is the PTSD from what Ole Miss football was for three years under Matt Luke, which was, I don't know, it was so unique. With Ed Orgeron, it was just a disaster because he was such a bad coach, but you saw the talent. Under Houston Nutt, it was squandering the talent. With Matt Luke, I don't even know what their whole deal was. I, I never quite saw the direction, right? It felt like there were all these... Indians and not a chief. Matt Luke was just a part of the staff, not the leader of the staff. It always felt strange. You had all of these different segments of the program operating independently of each other. It was bizarre, and that's why we're so not used to seeing normalcy with Ole Miss football. And Lane Kiffin is far from normal, but on the field normalcy that we don't know what to predict even though, if you look at it on paper, objectively, Ole Miss does have a better roster than Arkansas. Ole Miss does have a better roster than Vanderbilt. And had Matt Luke not happened, and the weirdness of that entire situation not happened, I think we would be predicting those three wins pretty easily, and we'd be trying to pick apart, okay, what are the biggest upsets? But we have PTSD. We're struggling with, what is this team going to be? Because we don't know. Because you had... Coaches holding positions at Ole Miss for the last three years that had no business holding those positions. And that's just not a knock on Matt Luke. I'm talking about Wesley McGriff, too, being the defensive coordinator, which was under Hugh Freeze. Phil Longo, same thing. Phil Longo's offense got better at North Carolina, but he had to learn through experimentation and failure at Ole Miss. So, yeah, it's weird. I don't know how to predict this team. I have no idea how to predict the schedule. And you factor all that in with COVID and everything else, all the uncertainty. I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. I don't know anything either, and I agree with you on the – it's interesting because you would probably have an easier time predicting two or three concrete wins on this schedule if it were not for the Matt Luke era. And you talk about them not having like an identity or direction. Don't you think that came from just the timidness? I mean, he took over a situation. He had an opportunity to kind of make that program his own. And instead of shouting – I mean, aside from shouting Mississippi made a lot, it was just run so conservatively and just so by the book, there was just no real direction and no real stamp. And I think that's kind of what you were alluding to, to some degree, unless I'm mistaking, but yeah, I agree. And then you just don't get the spring, but at the same time, this is like this current staff is a big boy staff for the lack of a better phrase, guys that have had other jobs and guys that are certainly qualified to be in these positions. I mean, hell Ole Miss road is the 2018 football season with, Matt Luke, Phil Longo, and Wesley McGriff as kind of the three most important men on staff. I mean, in retrospect, that, I mean, you just didn't stand a chance beforehand. I mean, mean, even before you get off the bus in Houston that year, you just didn't stand much of a shot. But I don't know how to predict this schedule either. I I really don't. I think it'll 
be fascinating. I hope they make it all the way through. Um, because I think setting expectations, and this is something I wrote Monday uh, as, or Sunday, excuse me, as well, on the spirit is like, I think setting expectations would be kind of a foolish exercise if you're an Ole Miss fan, given the fact new staff, no spring, no quarterback identity, already a significant loss on the defensive side of the ball, just the entire weirdness encapsulated into the season. At the same time, though, you need to lock down at least three wins to avoid disaster, right? Because two and eight, what's the message going into year two? Not that it really matters, but there is a way to get through this with three or four wins okay without avoiding complete disaster, is there not? I mean, you got to lock down a couple. Well, as far as the fans are concerned, it doesn't matter how many games you win or lose. They're going to give you a mulligan, and that's across the board of college football. They don't care. Just get through it. We understand the unique circumstances and how you get through this season with COVID and everything and all that. For recruiting purposes, though, it's critical. And you hear it all the time that, yeah, games matter and you have to see these teams play and that's going to impact. It's going to be far more important this year than ever before because that's really going to be the only tangible evidence of what these coaches are pitching to these recruits because they're not going to get these kids on campus. They're not going to get these kids in town for camps or they're not going to get these kids in for practices to see how the scheme works on a day-to-day basis how these coaches coach all you're going to see if you're a recruit is how this team plays on saturday and if they zoom in on lane kiffin and how he reacts to things so in that respect being two and eight would kill you not that all of a sudden three and seven is much better but at least being respectable i don't know if you have to go 500 to ensure that I don't think there's any special or magic number to ensure that the recruiting is taken care of. But you certainly can't bottom out and you can't embarrass yourself because then it's hard to sell that. And Ole Miss is not in a place where it can sacrifice even one recruiting class. It doesn't have that luxury. While other programs like in Alabama could, it never would because it's Alabama. But if it needed to, it could sacrifice one recruiting class because of how it's recruited forever. Ole Miss doesn't have that luxury. So that's where if you lose and lose a lot, lose eight of ten games, which I don't think is going to happen. I think the floor for Ole Miss is three wins. But if you do bottom out, that's going to be just an absolutely devastating thing potentially for recruiting. From a fan standpoint, I don't think fans really care. I know from a media standpoint, we don't care. But I'm not going to put any credence however Ole Miss finishes. Unless, of course, almost went 10-0, and 0, then, of course, you have to say something. But they're, they're, you know, they're not going 10-0. <laughs> you get what I'm saying. Like, I don't think you can read too much one way or the other unless it's one of the extremes. If it's 0-10 or 10-0, and 0, okay, I get it. But other than that, let's be in the real world. We're not living in fantasy land. Ole Miss is probably going to be two, three, four, five wins. Six wins is really stretching it. If you get to four wins out of this 10-game schedule, I think – you know, no matter really even how it looks, I think if you walk away four and six from this year, it's like, okay, that was successful. Now, to your point, does that mean three and seven's an abject failure? No, of course not. But it depends on how the three and seven looks. I think you could get to four and six no matter how it looks, and everyone would be like, you know, not mulligan or whatever because that's a respectable record, but feel okay going into year two. And to your point, the most important aspect with the way recruiting is, or should I say isn't, going to happen the way it normally happens uh i think four and six would be respectable uh, that being said it's probably a decent transition are there any games in particular that stick out to you as a chance that Ole miss would kind of have to flip an upset i originally kind of wrote a little bit about florida possibly even though i think florida is going to be really good but now that that's week one don't really buy it to me a home game against auburn and then Getting Texas A&M late in the year just based off previous history and nothing else with that program, even though this is the year they're supposed to launch, those were the two games I looked at and thought, hmm, you can make the case. We'll get right back to Brian Scott Rippey in this edition of Talk of Champions after I tell you briefly about Alan Samuels Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram of Oxford and Cheney's Pharmacy. We're all doing whatever we can to survive quarantine, right? It can be tough. We're making purchases to keep our sanity, to keep us happy. Maybe you're going on Amazon, hitting add to cart, purchase. Maybe, just maybe, you're in the market for a new car. And if you are, I know the place you should go. The only place you should go. And that's Alan Samuels Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram of Oxford. 
From new and used sales to parts and service, Allen Samuels of Oxford aims to provide a truly stellar automotive experience. But what separates Allen Samuels Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram of Oxford from every other dealership is Allen Samuels aims to address each of your needs with the utmost respect, care, and attention to detail. Most everyone who's listened to this podcast should know by now I only vouch for sponsors I truly believe in. If I myself have not had a personal experience with any sponsor, they're not going to be on this podcast. And my longest relationship is with Alan Samuels Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram of Oxford. Why? Because I can't say enough good things about Brian and Mason and the rest of the team. I don't like to haggle. I don't like to negotiate. I don't like the whole process of buying a car. With Alan Samuels Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram of Oxford, you can avoid all of that. They're looking out for you. So give them a call today, 662-234-8000. You can stop by and see them at 2201 East University Avenue. That's just past Kroger. Allen Samuels Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram of Oxford. The only place to find your perfect car, truck, or Jeep. Allen Samuels, let's be friends. Self-isolation, quarantine, has brought about its own set of problems. Don't let your pharmacy be one of them. Cheney's Pharmacy, they've earned your trust. You can count on them. Cheney's Pharmacy offers prescription synchronization, immunizations, compounding, a two-lane drive-through, and available hours that ensure your needs are met on your own time. Cheney's also accepts all third-party insurance. It's a locally-owned pharmacy that has been in Oxford over 40 years. Cheney's Pharmacy provides the best customer service out there, hands down. Give Cheney's a call, 662-234-7221, or go visit them at 501 Bramlett Boulevard. That's right off of University Avenue. They're open 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Monday through Saturday, 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. on Sundays. You can find them online at cheneyspharmacy.com. We've all got our own set of problems. Don't let your pharmacy be one of them. Cheney's Pharmacy. Much more than just a pharmacy. Auburn's number one, and the second one is LSU because it's the very last game. Assuming that Ole Miss has decent enough health, by that point they should be firing on all cylinders for what they are. So why not? I don't think LSU's going to be very good. They lost a lot. I think they had another opt-out recently. I have absolutely no faith in Mississippi product Miles Brennan. I just don't believe it. I think that Ole Miss will have the advantage where it needs to in that matchup, and that's at quarterback, whoever the quarterback is. I think it's going to be John Rice, but again, the reps were split evenly on Monday. Matt Corral could easily be the starter, and it wouldn't surprise me if he's immediately successful. He was getting better before he got hurt. He lost his job to injury. And that last staff, I've said it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again on this podcast, but it's true. That staff last year did a disservice to both of those kids and how they utilized them. Oh, it was, it was malpractice. It was absolutely disgusting. It was something you would see me do if I was the head coach of Ole Miss football because I wouldn't know any better, right? I, I wouldn't know how to fool a defense. So I would go, okay, I'm passing here. Let me get my passing quarterback on the field. Okay, I'm running here. Let me get my running quarterback on the field. It was nuts. Wasn't it more than that? Wasn't it the, the, like to me the way it played out? If, if John Rice Plumley had started the year as Ole Miss's quarterback, say he was just in Matt Corral's shoes, he was the rising redshirt freshman that they had spent all offseason make making the face of the program, and he played the exact same way that Corral did through three games or whatever, and then got hurt against Cal. Isn't Plumley getting his job back whenever he does come back? It's just that they wanted Plumley to be the quarterback so bad, and him starting as the backup, it was like the guilty pleasure they couldn't kick. And then he had some success, and it just made things weird. Because I just don't think in a normal scenario, you're quitting on the dude after three weeks that you dubbed the face of the program, unless it, the backup's the guy you kind of wanted all along anyway. Well, that's that who Rich Rod wanted all along. Sense. We've been through that. Yeah, I mean, that's who Rich Rod wanted all along. He wanted John Rice Plumley to be his quarterback. But Matt Corral is every bit – the challenger to the starting role as John Rice Plumley is. So whoever it is, take the ball, run with it, take the job, run with it. And I think by the end of the year, yeah, that LSU game could be right for the pick. And think about it. If LSU up until that point disappoints and for disappointment or disappointment for them would be winning what six games. That'd be real disappointment coming off of a national championship. So in that scenario, Ole Miss could be primed to upset an LSU, but I don't know if it, even that would be an upset at that point. But looking at it on paper right now, yeah, I could see it. I think Ole Miss has the best roster of the rebuilding teams, or at least not not necessarily overall roster as far as depth and all that, but key core pieces that you have to have to win. 
one of those two quarterbacks is going to be good enough. And I think it's better than most every other rebuilding team outside of state, which has KJ Costello, who's going to be good immediately. In critical areas where they have to have good players, they do. And that's why I think I'm a little bit more bullish on Ole Miss being more competitive. Because I just think that the staff last year was that bad. I thought Rich Rod was a regressive hire. I thought Mike McIntyre was great. But I think DJ Durkin's better. And I think the combination of DJ Durkin and Chris Partridge is better than just Mike McIntyre on his own. I think Mike McIntyre was basically designing every single game plan defensively on his own. Tyrone Nix has proven to be not a good defensive coordinator anymore. His time has come and gone. Now the defensive coordinator at UTSA, the place in which Charles Wiley has landed, which still makes no sense to me. If Charles Wiley walked back in tomorrow, he would start. But he's going to go start at UTSA. It's bizarre. It's absolutely nuts. That is a weird one. That is a weird one. And granted, I guess he didn't, obviously, at the time he risked to transfer another Sam Williams thing, but he was already in the mix to start or have serious playing time. You're one twisted ankle, or in this case, uh, you know, some sort of off the field slip up away from being it. I, I don't get that one either. As far as this, uh, as far as though we talked about the four win threshold and that kind of being the respectable, like uh, a respectable year, you can already see the blueprint to how that happens, though, right? You take care of business at Arkansas. And at Vanderbilt, pretend, uh, you know, knock on wood for their sake, no slip ups. And then you can see easily the two swing games is you getting South Carolina and whatever to make of that program with Will Muschamp's seat being almost every bit as hot as Derek Mason's. And then Mississippi State in the second to last game of the year. That's the most clear and obvious path to four without an upset, is it not? Yeah, probably. But I don't think any coach is getting fired after this year because all of these colleges being completely cash strapped. I know Boom should be on the hot seat and would be on the hot seat, but he won't be because there's no way they fire him dealing with what they're going to be dealing with as far as their cash flow is concerned. So South Carolina, you're stuck with him. You should have fired him last year if you were going to fire him. If Derek Mason has made it this far, it doesn't matter if he goes 0-10 this year. doesn't matter. He's going to be the coach next year too. But I'll tell you this. If Ole Miss beats Kentucky, goes to Kentucky and wins, it's on for them. That's how you get to the top end of whatever their top end is if it's five or six wins. You go to Kentucky and win, they got a shot. Not to beat Alabama, but certainly in all those games where the talent level is comparable, Vanderbilt, Mississippi State, South Carolina, Arkansas, yeah, you start to look at Ole Miss as a serious contender to win those games, to finish in the middle tier, that to finish 5-5. Five five. Yeah, yeah, you go to Lexington and win, it changes the – entire outlook of what your season could be, assuming you stay healthy. 100%, because that's early in the year. It's week two. They're not going to be favored in that game. Like, definitely not. I mean, I would argue it'd be closer to a touchdown than a field goal in that game. But if you go in there and you pull off that win, all of a sudden, assuming you lose it to Florida week one, you're one and one, and you're going to take your lumps the next week. But then you got a chance with Arkansas, Auburn, and Vandy to head into that bye week and maybe reel a couple off. I, I, you know, I didn't necessarily, I guess, see that the way the schedule set up early when I first initial look at it. But that Vander, that Kentucky game, which I don't think is completely unwinnable, I just think people are sleeping on K- Kentucky a little bit. If you ch- if you go and take that one, it kind of changes the whole dynamic of not only your season but just kind of how your fan base views some of this as well. We talked about them, yes, no expectations, not really caring. But you don't talk about getting people bought back in. You go up there and win a road game in week two, and it's kind of like, all right, let's see what you can do here. Yeah, that's how you fire people up immediately. Now, I don't know how they're going to come out against Florida, what they're going to look like. Offensively, a wrench was thrown into the plans. I don't know if Eli Johnson was going to start or not at center, but Ben Brown is now the starting center. They'll probably mix and match some more. Royce Newman is going to be the starting right tackle, unless they need to put him at guard if Eli Acker is the best of the reserves that are going to try to step up and start. Nick Broker is 100% starting at left tackle. The question is, who are they going to be the starting guards? Maybe Jalen Cunningham at left guard, Jeremy James at right guard. Caleb Warren and Jeremy James are really pushing for playing time, so I can see both of those guys potentially starting at guard. Ben Brown is a starting center. That is an NFL starting center. That's the perfect position for him. I always say he's an NFL player, but now at center, I see him being like Travis Frederick. And, of course, I'm kind of biased because I'm a Cowboys fan, but I see him cut from that kind of cloth. So I think Ben Brown's in the perfect spot for him. He's an NFL player. But filling it out around him, I don't know. I don't know how you deal with that. But Eli Johnson opting out. He's the only Ole Miss player to opt out. 
Kiffin was actually asked about if any other players were considering opting out. He said on Monday he hadn't heard anything. But still, that was kind of surprising news. I get it, though. Not just from the fact that Eli is nine hours away from completing his Masters and is ready to get started. He's 22 years old. He knows he's not going to the NFL. He's ready to go start his career as a coach. And Lane Kiffin has given him the opportunity to continue to be a part of the program and potentially be a GA starting January. It goes further than that when you consider who his dad is, which is David Johnson, who works with us at the Ole Miss Spirit. And we all know what David went through, almost dying from COVID, spent over 20 days on a ventilator, and then was given, I think, at one point, a 5% survival rate, and he battled, and he got through it, and he recovered. He's still dealing with some complications, but Eli saw that firsthand. So it was really cool to see when the news came out that Eli was opting out, the overwhelming support that Ole Miss fans had, not just on Twitter, but message boards, Facebook, overwhelmingly supported this kid. If any family deserves that kind of support, it's them, and it would have been so easy like everything else in this country right now, to politicize the issue. But for Eli, it was very personal. It was the choice he made himself for himself and his career and his family. And it was, I just want to applaud Ole Miss fans for actually treating that respectfully. Because I was surprised that it was so overwhelmingly one-sided. Yeah, agreed. So you just kind of hit on the last piece of news, it seems like everything. Didn't seem like anything too shocking in fall camp today. I found it interesting that Kiffin said he was a bit surprised by it. And frankly... I was too. I know we talked a little bit earlier before we started recording, uh, just because when you know when I talked to Eli and did that story on he and David and their families kind of battle with it back in early July or whatever it was, his attitude at the time seemed to be kind of like, yeah, like this happened. We're definitely definitely more leaning towards like, hey, everybody just make a choice, live your life. We're not here to tell anyone how to live. And so I, I only say that to say you can tell there was a lot of thought into this decision put into it to him. For him to arrive from where he kind of viewed it, you know, around 4th of July or whenever that was to now. And so is it shocking? No, not really at all. But given where he was a month ago, I just think you can tell there was a lot of thought and put put in that decision. And to echo your point on the coaching staff supporting him, not a lot of that got put in the story, but he made that very clear that uh, Kiffin and that staff could not have been better to him in terms of support and actual kind of genuinely caring about him and talking to him daily and helping him through one of the more difficult times of his young adult life. But uh, that was just kind of my overall take on it was clearly he put a ton of thought into his, to this, to go from that mindset to arrive uh, to the point where he is now. Other than that, anything really of note, what did we learn from the first day of fall camp on Monday? Um, I mean, the on the field piece, I guess the one thing I left out of the Eli Johnson thing, you may agree, disagree, is not necessarily it hurts in the sense that you're losing your starting center as much as it is. They're still trying to formulate some depth there. So I think losing him and making Ben Brown slide to center hurts your depth more than anything else. No. Yeah, I still think that it's the best position for Ben Brown and it opens up playing time for two guys and Caleb Warren and Jeremy James that I think have more upside than Eli did. And that's no disrespect to Eli, but he is, or he was what he was. we got to talk about him in the past sense now. He was what he was. Other things that really jumped out at me, uh, we talked to DJ Durkin, Chris Partridge, Lane Kiffin. Nothing really. Nothing. Uh, it's walkthroughs. What are you going to talk about? Now I think once they put on pads, we might learn a little bit more. I think the most obvious storyline was how they broke up reps with the quarterbacks and it being even with Matt Corral and John Rice Plumley. That's going to be a story throughout all of um, August on into September. If they do kick off in, on time September 26th, who's going to be under center? That's what we're going to be talking about. But the fact that it was those two and no Grant Tisdale as far as in the real battle, he got reps just like Cade Renfro got reps, just like Kenny K. Dent got reps. But we know who the two guys are. Yeah, and I think as far as the storyline goes, don't you think at least for the first couple of weeks when you talk about how the reps are split up, that week by week at least or day by day, it's going to be that. They're probably going to get pretty equal reps for a pretty good amount of time. Yeah, when do you have to start giving more reps to one guy? Two weeks out, maybe. But this is also a situation that no one's ever encountered before. So like a normal fall camp year, right, after you've gone through spring, one, you're probably not getting perfectly even reps after the spring because I think someone, probably Corral, would have gotten the nod up with Plumlee playing baseball. 
And so then you kind of go into it where it's not on even footing. So I don't really know because this is a whole like practice time frame that no football coach in major college football has ever had to deal with. So my just guess burning out off the top of my head is two weeks out. You give him a week of like whatever the hell it is that he looks like before game week and then let him roll into game week. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's kind of how it's been. I just think trying to figure out anything concrete right now with the way things have been changing with COVID, yeah, it's, it'd be silly. It'd be silly. If you had to pick one, are you still going with John Rice? Are you going Matt Corral? Where are you going? I just – and it's going to sound like I'm wishy-washy because I was a big Matt Corral defender in the sense last year. I don't think a lot of people fully appreciated just how badly uh, – you mentioned that the coaching staff did a disservice to both of them, and I 100% agree. I think it did more so – a disservice to Matt Corral's development because I'm just not sure how much expectations John Rice Plumley had going into the season in terms of playing time and what that would look like. So, like, it's going to sound wishy-washy, but I just think at the end of the day, if they can – granted, we're not going to get to see a ton of practice. If you can turn uh, Plumley into a competent passer, I just think the, the, the footwork is still – is you know, the foot and everything you can do with his feet is too much to kind of pass up and leave him on the sideline. So – I guess it all comes down to whether Plumlee's a competent passer or not, right? Because if he's competent enough, you'll live with competent and live with that foot speed, whereas if he's just not, then you got to play Corral. At least we've got football to talk about, an all-new edition of this podcast where we just talked about football stuff. It's been good. The first one we've done since you and I have started doing this podcast together where I don't think either of us got ranty or got annoyed by talking. Did we mention the word COVID-19 or the virus one time? I think I just jinxed it by saying it out loud, but that was way more enjoyable than the last month. Yeah. I think I might've mentioned COVID <laughs> as far as, you know, you got to pay attention to the weirdness of it. But other than that, no ranting, nothing. It was just football stuff. And me and Godfrey cover football stuff. So yeah, it's just all football. This is what we want to do. And hopefully, hopefully this was amazing. Yeah. Hopefully the SEC stays on schedule and actually kicks off and actually finishes because if it does we'll just talk about football stuff fingers crossed man fingers crossed yeah that's all you can do he's brian scott rippy thanks buddy appreciate it going now to the modern woman phone line we're going to speak to stephen godfrey but first let's hear from modern woodman in bna bank are you tired of working nine to five for 40 hours every week just to make money for someone else well, our sponsor of the Talk of Champions phone line is Thomas Chandler of Modern Woodman, and he's looking to hire new financial representatives here in Mississippi. No background experience is necessary, but you do have to be a resident of Mississippi. And what he's looking for is someone who is highly self-motivated and who wants to make a difference in the lives of others. A full-time position comes with benefits, such as health insurance, a matching 401k, and a pension plan. For more information, feel free to reach out to Thomas personally. You can find him on Facebook, or his number is 662-296-0186. That's 662-296-0186. That's Thomas Chandler of Modern Woodman, a proud sponsor of Talk of Champions. Reason number 12 to bank at BNA. We are the bank for Northeast Mississippi. We have one home, Northeast Mississippi. Seeing this local Northeast Mississippi economy thrive and helping the people of our area with their borrowing needs is our only focus. From buying a home to starting your own business, we are the team of local lenders standing ready to make your dreams a reality. BNA Bank. We are the bank of Northeast Mississippi. Member FDIC, an equal housing lender. The Modern Woodman phone line. Cool. We'll talk. No big whoop. No big whoop. Where the best Ole Miss guests from far and wide drop in to talk the very latest in Rebel Sports. Modern Woodman. Let's make a difference together. This is Talk of Champions. I'm Ben Garrett at Spirit. Ben on Twitter. Joining me now on the Modern Woodman phone line. It's my buddy, Stephen Godfrey, at 38Godfrey on Twitter. National college football reporter for SB Nation. Hey, buddy, what's up? Oh, you know, 2020. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yep. You hanging in there okay, though? Uh, you know, every day is a new adventure. That's the most diplomatic way I can say it and not lose my mind. I've become a Mr. Mom. You always had it in you. <laughs> Cooking, cleaning. I'm doing the thing, man. Yeah. 
Yeah. You'd be impressed. I'm proud of you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You've always had that potential. Sure. The SEC announced its week one matchups. What a transition for me. Um, some intriguing matchups. Ole Miss drew Florida at home. Alabama at Missouri. Georgia at Arkansas. Kentucky at Auburn. Mississippi State at LSU. Tennessee at South Carolina. Vanderbilt at Texas A&M. Which one of those games piques your interest the most? Well, uh, as I'm kind of reacting to this in real time, there are four games with basically the four best programs in the league, the four best rosters, most consistent coaching staffs that they have right now versus four teams that haven't really practiced with new coaches, haven't installed their offense, haven't installed their defense, terrible rosters, you know, especially in the case of like Arkansas. I mean, I think you're looking at Georgia-Arkansas, potentially a 30-point game, okay? Alabama-Missouri, 30-point game. LSU-Mississippi State, 30-point game. Florida Ole Miss, 30-point game. I think it's a very strange way to do it, but I think the reason they did it is that there's so much uncertainty right now um, because of how just you know weird everything is that they wanted to give – the premier programs as much of a benefit as, uh, of the doubt as they could without, you know, obviously giving them like a, you know, a non-conference game against some directional conference USA school. So this is what they came up with. So Ole Miss for you is 30 points worse than Florida right now. Well, I I say that only because it's not really about the two programs. It's not about, it's not about any of the normal ways in which we would measure two football programs. I mean, you have four schools in this league, Ole Miss, Arkansas, Mississippi State, Missouri, that are walking into a season roughly a month from now, and they've had, they've had nothing in the way of preparation. I mean, I, I don't think that's been talked about enough. You, you, you haven't had – time to scrimmage you haven't had time to go out there and physically do the install and work through it um you know in the case of you know for mississippi state specifically there, there's an entire book written by mike leach about how you know how to do it and what it takes on their specific offensive system um you know arkansas is in shambles um coming off of a terrible two-year experiment with a, with a philosophy and a coaching staff just didn't work out I think Ole Miss probably has the best roster right now of those four programs, but they haven't had any time to do the things that they want to do. And then you're, you're going against the team that played in what won the orange bowl last year. Right. Um, it, it, it's laughable. It, it, it's just kind of, I think how the league set it up. They gave them the four best options for those bigger teams. I think to establish consistency, get a win and be able to move on. Um, I don't think that's conspiratorial. I really don't. I just think it's, I think it's as much of an attempted normalcy as the league could, could create. Was there ever really an opportunity or a chance for Ole Miss and Mississippi State to open the year against each other? Yeah, I mean, it was discussed. Um, I think one of the mitigating factors there was, you know, all of the in-conference in major rivalry games were – they it was kicked around. It was kicked around as early as September, then it was kicked around – this was like two iterations of the 2020 season ago where they would start immediately. They talked about an eight game year and a 10 game year uh, doing the rivalries first, because what if that was the only game played that year? So there was talk about LSU and A&M, the egg bowl, the iron bowl. Um, I don't know if it, you know, it didn't really move past the planning phases necessarily, but it was, it was discussed. Um, I think what they're doing here is that they're, they're kind of signaling to the rest of the country that, they believe they can get the entire season in. I think that's what they're showing. And otherwise, I think the league was a little worried about the perception of, oh, well, they're just playing, you know, quote unquote, the most important games first in case this whole thing gets scrapped after two weeks or three weeks. Over under six and a half games that every single one of these programs plays. Oh, man, six and a half is the number right now, isn't it? Did you set that line? Yeah. Very good. Um, you know, I think uh, here's why I'm going to say it doesn't work is because I think you're going to see a situation that you're seeing in baseball right now 
right? Where a program, yeah, program, sorry, a, a, a franchise like the Cardinals has only played what five, six games. Okay. Whereas like the Cubs and the Braves have played their entire schedule. I think a situation like that is more likely than a situation in which they shut it all off at the exact same time. So in other words, I think they would try and if, if there was a delay because of testing and positives, they would try and lock down those one or two programs first. And so they, they could end up closing the season with some teams playing maybe four games, six games, seven games, you know, it, it would all be different. I think on Monday, Lane Kiffin said that 90% of Ole Miss players, and it was a rough number, but 90% all their classes were online. And if that's the case across the board in the SEC, that pretty much means that the SEC is in a bubble. They're in a bubble. I mean, if these kids are spending most of their times at their practice facilities in the stadium, stuff like that, and they're only going online. Now, granted, they're going to be around each other because they're kids. This is a bubble. And we've been talking so much about the NBA and the bubble and it's working and all that kind of stuff. Um, if that happens, if that continues, I think there's a better chance that they could get in more than six and a half. Um, yeah, except for the fact that there's an actual security measure in place with the NBA and the, in the NHL specifically. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right? So the NBA is isolated to one campus in one sort of larger campus bubble in Orlando. The NHL is in two cities in Canada. And it is, I mean, for lack of a better word, police. Um, what happens is that if 90% of the kids are in, you know, online only classes, that's great. I think mean, that, that would be a good, a good first start. If you were like a DFO for a football team and you're trying to mitigate like, you know, outbreak potential. The problem is this, you can't tell the kids not to go out. And we've seen, we've seen examples of maskless large crowds, you know, pretty much everywhere across the country. I don't think it has anything to do with a particular place or like a, you know, it's, it's, the South is worse or the Midwest is worse or whatever. I think it's just college kids being college kids. And if given their, you know, given their druthers, they're going to go out and, you know, go to a bunch of crowded bars and parties. And so the online class thing is good. It's just, you can't seal them off. Um, and really you can't even try to do it because we're talking about, you know, quote unquote, amateur athletes. Here. Do you think it's realistic right now where we're sitting that this actually kicks off on September 26th? Yeah, I think it kicks off. You know, my, my my stance all the way from April has always been it would happen. I just didn't know if it would finish. And I still feel that way because they've given themselves enough, you know, they've given themselves enough time to where I'm seeing adjustments being made and measures being taken at some of the other SEC schools, you know, in, in Knoxville and in, in Tuscaloosa and People are starting to, this is just anecdotally talking to people, you know, they're, they're, they're getting a rhythm for it. Um, it's funny, Ben, I, I really think we have to pay attention to the next two weeks specifically for campus outbreaks. Not, it's not really anything to do with college football, but general, general outbreaks on these campuses is right now, like you're seeing UNC Chapel Hill just get whacked. They've had outbreak after outbreak. And eventually, I'm sure it's going to come out that it's not just, uh, you know, regular college students that are being affected. The players are being affected as well. And so if the SEC gambled the right way by pushing it to the 26th of September and saying, okay, well, by then we'll be able to kind of measure this out and figure out how to handle it. And that was the right move. We'll know pretty soon. You know, I'm actually more interested to see whether or not some of these earlier games are going to happen at all. Does it matter – if they have any championships or postseasons at the end of this, it's all about just finishing it, right? If you can actually get through the season and finish a 10-game schedule, that's success. Anything that comes after that, who cares? That's gravy. Well, I think I mean, my – so if you're asking me do I think there would be a playoff, yeah, I think there will be. I don't think they care at all about the absence of the Pac-12 and the Big 12, and I'm, and I'm not saying that in sort of like a conference shade way. I'm just saying that like fiscally – these, you know, the the playoff as an entity, as a business, is is going to try and push forward and carry out its, the games, the televised events as much as they can. I mean, everyone else, everyone is taking such a haircut financially right now that the the the, the order of operations is always going to be let's attempt to do this thing and then kind of walk it back from there. So, 
I think if you see teams play, I think if you see the majority of the teams committed now from the three conferences plus the, you know, the American and the other conferences, if you see them all play an average of eight games, I think you will see a playoff. Absolutely. My whole deal with the Big Ten and the Pac-12 pulling out so quickly is that I'm one of those that it's all about taking all the precautions necessary to protect the kids. Uh, I'm on that side of it. But I still felt like it was a little premature for them. And, and maybe it's because the SEC is kicking the can down the road. That could be the case. But it feels like more of the SEC is saying, we don't have to make this decision right now. And, and I think that it's kind of right. Why did the Big Ten and the Pac-12 feel like they had to make the decision now? Why couldn't you wait? What was the harm in waiting? I think they were measuring liability above all else. And they wanted to make a firm commitment to whether or not they were going to do it. And I think there was pressure to make a decision one way or the other. And even if that decision was not to play the season, to go ahead and make those moves towards that goal. And so the reality is we will not know. And I really I really advise a lot of people not to think in the binary. Okay. It's not about right and wrong here. Yeah, because there's just so much we don't know about the long-term effects. We don't. We, we, there's a lot of this we just don't understand, and we may not know the full impact or scope, one way or the other, or lack of scope, I might add, or, or you know how much of this maybe was was an overreach, or how much of this was stuff that we didn't even realize, and turns out the transmission could have lasting effects, and all of those. We don't know, and so. It will be a long time before I think in hindsight we can say, okay, well, you know, the, the Big Ten did it right or the SEC was calmer and took a more measured effect to it. And everybody's decision-making process was a little bit different. I think this is just, um, you know, my talking point all year has been that COVID doesn't really change life. COVID, it, it's just like a pressure point that exposes the existing weaknesses in any system or structure. And this is no different. You know, college college football specifically, Ben, has no governing entity, right? You know, there's one postseason tournament in, in, in basketball, and it's run by the NCAA itself. And that's very, very important to, to remember because the playoff is its own entity, and it basically corrals together a bunch of separate sort of federations. And all those people, I mean, they don't even have the same kind of referees. I mean, it's always been a very, like, tribal sport and when you have that when you have decentralized decision making this is what's going to happen and i'm not saying should they have a you know should they have a a commissioning governing body after this i don't know but i know as soon as it broke down regionally and and all of the the impacts that we saw and the way it moved and how life in new york state was very different than life in texas for a while and then very different than california I knew that we weren't going to see all five of those conferences in lockstep with one another. We'll get right back to Stephen Godfrey in this edition of Talk of Champions after I tell you briefly about Mosquito Marshals, a proud sponsor of Talk of Champions. Are bugs ruining your evenings outside? Do you want to reclaim your yard from those pesky bugs? Well, Mosquito Marshals is here to help, to let their customers and their families enjoy living outside again. At Mosquito Marshals, their top priority is to keep their customers bite-free by providing the best mosquito control services in the industry. The goal is simple, to protect their customers' homes and businesses from mosquitoes, fleas, ticks, and they stand by their results. If you're not 100% satisfied, they'll respray your yard for free. But how do I know this? Because I have first-hand experience. Mosquito Marshals rode out to my house and sprayed my yard. Took them no time, and I haven't seen a mosquito since. And trust me, I'm just like you. In quarantine, all me and my daughters can do is go outside, ride a bike, play some ping pong in the garage. Don't let a mosquito mess up your good time. No, schedule your appointment today. You can give them a call at 662-715-1818. That's 662-715-1818. Or visit Mosquito Marshalls online at mosquitomarshalls.com. Mosquito Marshalls, serving Oxford, Batesville, Water Valley, New Albany, Pontotoc, wherever you are, they'll come to you. Mosquito Marshalls. That was the most surprising thing to me throughout the whole deal, though, was the lack of uniformity in making decisions amongst the conference decision makers, the presidents, the ADs, everybody coming together and trying to find a collective path forward. And again, it speaks to the complete dereliction of duty from the NCAA that they're nowhere to be seen and that Mark Emmert 
has provided no leadership whatsoever. So what comes out of the end of this? Assuming that the SEC gets in games, the conferences that are going to play getting games and finish, and there is a playoff, what is college football going to look like? It's going to be a probably a largely considered asterisk type season. I think that um, because you're still talking about 60, 70 programs that are going to make a go of it, I think Notre Dame's addition to the ACC helps temporarily. Um, that's enough for them to sort of try and pass it off as like, oh, no, you know, this, this counted. This counted. Um, moving forward, I, th- I, I just think you have to have a little bit more cohesion in the, in the governing element. I think the five power conferences of Notre Dame are going to have to have to come to some sort of agreement where there is some sort of, I don't know, like, I don't know, coalition. Maybe there's a commissioner just for those schools. They have to start working more as a collective. And, and I think the separation between P5 and G5 is going to be pretty dramatic as well. The question I, th- I have is, do they break away from the NCAA? Because it feels like we're closer to that than ever before, especially since the NCAA has been absent throughout this entire process. And it feels like the most important voice in the room right now is Greg Sankey. Um, you would need something more for them to break apart. I, I think you have a better chance of breaking apart because of the stuff related to name, image, and likeness than you do because of the management of the different the different conferences' COVID policies. So I think that would probably create a, a, a separation from the NCAA before anything to do with COVID would. Speaking of name, image, and likeness, so I'm on Cameo.com last night just looking through some stuff because I really wanted to look at some stuff. And, man, there are so many coaches on there, like Bill Self, Mike Leach. You can pay 150 bucks and they'll do a personalized video. But yet a lot of these yeah. coaches will turn around and say that players making money off their name, image, and likeness is the root of all evil. Yeah, it's uh... – just the latest in a long line of examples on how absolutely ridiculously uh, hypocritical this entire industry is. I mean, it's look, you and I have been paying our mortgages for a long time off of college sports. Yep. It's the media, it's licensing outfits, it's universities, it's administrators. I mean, you know, you know the spiel. Um, look, at one point, I think there was a very serious discussion that they would rather shut the whole thing down out of fear of what the organizing element of, of player labor this year, then they would have rather than just say like, Hey, yeah, we'll, we'll pay you guys a living wage. I think it would take like Trevor Lawrence opting out to really have that discussion. We might be getting there. I mean, honestly, I think that, um, you know, one of the things just to kind of jump, jump subjects for a second, uh, the reason I don't think that the Pac-12 and the Big Ten are going to play in the spring is that it just doesn't incentivize its, its top-end athletes to play because the NFL draft is not going to change. It's not. I mean, the idea that you would be playing a sport as physically harmful as football up until or even after you've been drafted by an NFL team that's paying you money, that's just not going to happen. The NFL, I mean, the NFL franchises are going to tell you immediately, don't do a damn thing. Yeah, that was never realistic to me. All the talk about the spring was nonsense. It was never even remotely feasible because, again, you're right. I mean, those kids opting out, it's all the best players that are going to get drafted. They're not going to play. Why would they play? That's pointless. Yep. It's pointless. Exactly. Um if this 10-game schedule for the SEC works out, and it's what I think it is, and that means a money-making cash cow where every single game, every single weekend, you're getting primetime slots, you're getting SEC games. There's no, okay, well, Ole Miss is playing Southeast Missouri. Vanderbilt and Kentucky are playing. I'm going to watch Vanderbilt and Kentucky. They're getting a good spot. Every single TV spot will have an SEC game on it. And I really believe that they're going to make so much money that it's going to be tempting, and you can tell me if I'm completely unrealistic here, tempting at least, to keep the schedule this way. Even if you have to sacrifice two games, they're going to be so cash-strapped. Why would you pay a cupcake to come play at your place when you're already so cash-strapped? Why would you go play at Charlotte when it really does well, nothing for you? The reason why is that it increases the overall amount of inventory for the for the, 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 the carriage rights deal. So 
if you play 10 games, no matter what the quality, it's inherently less revenue than playing 12 games as it is playing 14 games. So, you know, I, I wrote about this at Banner Society a couple of weeks ago. You know, these cupcake games, there's there's multiple reasons why they've been suspended so far. But it's not going to – I don't think it's going to go away in the long term because, yeah, you know what, you might pay Charlotte or Middle Tennessee State, you know, $1.2, $1.3 million to come to your campus. But that's because you're making more than that off of gate, off of licensing, off of – all of the revenue streams that come with an SEC home game. That's the whole reason they're there in the first place. These additional non-conference games against naturally inferior opponents exist because it's a financial windfall for the SEC programs themselves. And written into that big, fat, billion-dollar television deal with Disney is inventory. Because all – I mean, look, you're right – Arkansas playing Southeastern Louisiana is not a quality game, but it's more quality than no football. And quality is, by the way, I'm measuring quality of ad sales, right? You can sell ads for more money on the worst college football game you've ever seen than you can on not college football. That's that's the incentive, um, and that's really what drives it. So I think there might be a renewed conversation about the number of conference games. Um, but again, the SEC has always been very hesitant to do that then because they don't want to affect, I mean, basically they own the, the playoff market, you know, in terms, in terms of performance, there, there's no incentive for them to go from eight to nine conference games or even more when, I mean, a couple of years ago, you had Alabama and Georgia playing each other in the national title game. So you think there's no chance that it's here to stay? That it's all SEC all the time, and basically these no, conferences yeah, I, uh, become their own entity. They'll always add on. Okay. No, they, they will always add on because there's too much money in it, um, both in scheduling. You know, Alabama playing Charleston Southern the week before they go to the Iron Bowl. You know, there's a financial reason for that. There's a football reason for that. And then, you know, let's not forget there were upwards, I think, 10, 12 games in the first week maybe the first two that were scheduled in NFL stadiums. And, and there's a revenue model for that as well. And ESPN's behind that. And they're, they're, they're aggressively behind that effort. So, you know, the fact that Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta had two games scheduled in it, Dallas, Texas, Houston, where Ole Miss is going to play Baylor, there are a tremendous amount of outside entities who still want to get in on making money off college football. So I don't think that like, if you're talking about a post vaccine, you know, quote unquote, normal world, I don't think any of that's really going to go away. It will take some time to come back because those games are predicated upon people spending $135 a ticket and going to those NFL stadiums. And when they're not there, it's, it, it's a complete finance financial mess. I was, I was at the Houston, the advocate kickoff the year that Oklahoma state played Mississippi state. And and the the thing was damn near empty, and the, the, I mean that that ruins the entire economic model for those kind of, those those games. Fortunately, that's usually the the the, the rarity for Chick Fil A and Advocare and all those companies that sponsor those things because normally you get like you know Washington playing Auburn in Atlanta and the thing is completely sold out. So what will be the biggest change in college football once all this stuff settles down, whenever that is? Year, I don't think it'll, yeah, I don't think, yeah, it, it won't be anything to do with scheduling. I, I really think they'll just regress back into their ways. Um, they have to rectify once COVID's done, they're all going to be looking at financial debt. They're all going to be looking at immediate cash shortages. They're all going to be dealing with smaller athletic department size, probably the restriction or probably the elimination of sports, travel restrictions, budgetary restrictions, and then the, the, the issue that a lot of these states are dealing with right now is individual state governments passing name image and likeness legislation uh which would fly in the face of the ncaa so really it, it's it's kind of like a movie with two monsters and right now COVID is sort of taking up all the screen time but as soon as that's done defeated or managed you know there was already a crisis brewing in college sports before the the pandemic started Lane Kiffin, Mike Leach, Eli Drinkwitz, Sam Pittman. Which one has the best first year? Probably Drinkwitz or Kiffin. Well, no, because Missouri picks up some killers too. So um, it might be Kiffin. 
or Leach because Arkansas and Missouri get smacked in the scheduling. So I think it's one of the Mississippi schedules. Yeah, poor, poor Arkansas, man. <laughs> they just got shortchanged so hard, man. I mean, it, 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 it's a total full-blown identity crisis because even if it, even if, if Pittman has some sort of recipe for success, just relative success, six and six success, um, it's going to take a long, long time. So it's, it's going to be an uphill battle for that team. At 38, Godfrey writes for SB Nation, a national college football writer. Stephen Godfrey, good friend of the program, my buddy. Thanks, man. I appreciate you. Yes, sir. I'll talk to you soon. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.